This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to remind you that Amanda and I have created a Patreon page for the podcast this year. If you become a Patreon member, you can gain early access to episodes without ads, access to bonus episodes, a monthly newsletter with study tips, and more. You can join by visiting www.patreon.com slash certified OCS prep podcast. Also, if you're using MedBridge to study, you can get $175 off your yearly membership by using our affiliate code certified. If you have any questions about MedBridge or Patreon, you can email us at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to continue on the low back series that we started. Um, We're going to talk about uh, radiating and related and referred lower extremity pain. So that's kind of a cluster of symptoms. Um, you know, depending on what source you're using, it may not be as clearly defined, which is which, but so we're going to kind of go over all of them. Again, we're going to break things down into that acute, subacute, and chronic categories, just as we have been. Um, the presentation of a patient with acute low back pain with radiating pain is going to be pain in the initial to mid ranges of active or passive motions. They're going to have an associated radiating pain in the involved lower extremity that may be described as numbness, uh, weakness, a paresthesia. Sometimes it's sharp or shooting. It can be any number of descriptors. They're going to have lower limb tension or a positive straight leg raise or slump test that aggravates their symptoms. And they're going to have signs of nerve root involvement, so sensory or strength or reflex deficits. A subacute low back pain patient with low back pain with radiating pain patient is going to present with pain and the mid to end ranges of active or passive motions. They're going to have that subacute reoccurring mid back pain and or the um, associated radiating pain and a potential sensory strength or reflex deficit in that involved lower extremity. I think the key there is where that reoccurring symptoms come in. These patients are going to say this isn't the first time they've experienced this. Their symptoms are going to be increased or aggravated with mid-range and worsened with the end-range lower limb nerve tension testing. Chronic low back pain patients with radiating pain are going to have pain that occurs with sustained end-range movements or positions. They're going to present with a chronic reoccurring mid-back and or low back pain. They're going to have that associated radiating pain and, again, that potential sensory strength or reflex deficit in the involved lower extremity. They're going to have a reproduction of symptoms with sustained end-range lower limb neural tension testing. So that's another way to differentiate between all three. Your acute pain, your acute um, low back pain with radiating pain patients are probably going to have a more rapid positive sign with your lower limb tension testing, they're going to be a little bit more easily provoked with those. Subacute, less so, you're going to probably be able to get closer to mid-range until that provokes their symptoms. And those chronic pain patients, you're probably going to get closer to the end range and be able to sustain it before they have symptoms come on. So it's important when you're doing those examination measures to make sure that you're aware where during the range the symptoms come on, and then also holding them long enough to get a true response. Imaging in these pain, in these patients, um, basically you're looking at 
um, no strong indication. So again, you're just like we've been talking about, you're looking back at your red flags. So as long as there's no significant red flags, no need for imaging. Um, clinically in the, when I'm working, I often see these patients having significant imaging before they come to me. Um, I think that these kind of radiating and referred pain patterns are scary to patients because it's all the way down their legs sometimes. And they think something really terrible is happening that can't possibly be fixed easily. So they often end up at the doctor much sooner than they end up with you. And they often, in my experience, have had at least a x-ray, if not an already an MRI. In patients with low back um, and radiating pain, uh, low back pain with radiating pain, an MRI or a CT is indicated with severe or progressive neurodeficits. So this that type of imaging is also going to have utility in their surgical planning or injection procedures. So I think that's what's important to note is if you're having patients with neurodeficits, um, you know, the preferred imaging in that case probably isn't even an x-ray. Unfortunately, I know sometimes insurance won't pay for an MRI until there's been an x-ray, um, what have you. But basically, keep in mind it's for surgical and injection planning. One category that's differentiated out in the clinical prediction rule is the acute low back pain with related or referred lower extremity pain. So they categorize it a little bit differently in that document than the radiating pain. And these patients are going to have pain in, into the lower extremity with symptoms that are highly, highly irritable. And they're going to have the buttock, thigh, or leg pain that worsens with flexion. Their symptoms will often centralize easily, but they may also present with a lateral trunk shift, a reduced lumbar lordosis, and limited extension, extension mobility. So it's probably more of that guarded movement pattern that you're going to see based on the acuity. So when we look at examining these patients, you of course, want to check their lumbar active and passive range of motion, assessing for their symptom reproduction. And if there is symptom reproduction present, at what point within the range does that exacerbation occur? A segmental mobility assessment is still appropriate in these patients. Again, looking for that symptom reproduction, pain provocation that can indicate specific level involvement. And then repeated movement testing is really important in these folks, monitoring their system their symptom response. So you want to really be looking for that centralization of symptoms, um, but also you want to make sure you're looking for the improved mechanics. So sometimes even if their pain doesn't get a lot better initially, you know, especially in that really acute group, they may be able to achieve greater degrees of extension and or flexion, depending which way they have a preference. Checking a straight leg raise, basically the patient is supine. The therapist is going to passively raise the lower extremity flexing the hip with the knee extended. A positive test is a reproduction of lower extremity or radiating radicular pain. So just making sure you're asking, is this your familiar pain? A lot of patients are going to say it's painful if they're tight in the hamstrings, of course, um, but just checking to make sure it's truly their radiating or radicular pain. In the slump test, the patient is asked to sit in a slumped position with their knees flexed, I think most often over the edge of a plinth. Then so you're going to add cervical flexion, knee extension, and ankle dorsiflexion in a sequential order until you achieve symptom reproduction. A positive confirmation is if you can extend the cervical spine or you basically plantar flex or flex the knee and that reduces their symptoms. So you're basically bringing all those things on, seeing if you get a positive response if you, of their symptoms. If you do, it's a positive test and you just want to confirm it by kind of undoing it, you know, releasing the tension. If it 
their symptoms reduce, then you can be pretty sure they have a positive slump test. Intervention in these patients with a level A recommendation, there is guidance for thrust manipulation in the acute subgroup. Um, in the previous episode, we talked about the clinical prediction rule that was validated by Childs et al. Um, and this is also applicable to the mobility group. And if there's a presence of four out of five of the following predictors, you're going to increase the probability of a success with a thrust manipulation to 95%. Those four predictors, again, are duration of symptoms less than 16 days, symptoms proximal to the knee, lumbar hypomobility, at least one hip with greater than 35 degrees of internal rotation, and that FABQ work score of less than 19. Some research suggests that patients in the subacute and chronic low back um, and back-related lower extremity pain subcategories may also benefit from both thrust and non-thrust manual therapy interventions. It's just important to note that the research isn't quite as strong as that thrust manipulation for the acute group. In the subacute and chronic subgroups, you want to note that the manual mobilizations may also need to include their hip. Um, a lot of these folks have limited hip mobility too, so it's important to make sure you're checking that out and considering that when you're going to add in manual interventions for them. With another level A recommendation would be repeated movements in this category. So the goal with repeated movements is to facilitate centralization in the acute group and there's inconclusive evidence based on a study by Machado et al. in the subgroup of patients with chronic pain to determine whether or not repeated movements would be as helpful. The subacute group isn't, isn't quite as noted. I think it's probably most likely because that's a little bit of a gray area. Different research defines the subacute group as being different durations of symptoms. And so when you're looking at whether or not it's a strong recommendation, I think it varies. But again, for the acute group, it's a level A. And for the subacute group, or for the chronic group, excuse me, it's inconclusive. Um, this study by Machado et al. compared the McKenzie approach with the usual first-line care in the chronic pain group, which was advice, reassurance, and prescribing Tylenol. The McKenzie approach reduced healthcare use, but it did not lead to an appreciable improvement in pain or disability compared to the first-line care. So I think, you know, many factors can probably go into that. You know, it probably is patient-specific. It probably depends how soon they got care, all of that, but just something to be aware of. A level C recommendation is for flexion-based exercises, nerve mobilizations, and manual therapy combined with progressive activity for reducing pain and disability in older patients with chronic low back pain with radiating pain. So really what they're talking about in this subgroup, those flexion-based exercises, are your chronic pain with spinal stenosis type symptoms. Um, it's important not to leave them out. They're generally going to respond to flexion. Um, you know, certainly trying some nerve mobilizations can help with them. They are still candidates for manual therapy. Just note that it's a level C recommendation. So the research isn't quite as strong for the benefits. Another level C recommendation is for lower quarter nerve mobilization procedures to reduce pain and disability in patients with subacute and chronic low back pain and radiating pain. Um, you know, I think when I was studying, that's one of those things that kind of surprised me, especially because so much emphasis is placed on confirming patients into this category through a positive straight leg raise and slump test. Um, but I think, you know, if you're acute pain patients, they're probably going to be a little bit 
um, stronger responders to those lower quarter nerve mobilizations versus that subacute and chronic pain patients, because you have to go through so much more of the range to even get a positive response, they may not have the same benefit from treatment. A level B recommendation is for patient education that reduces that pathoanatomical diagnosis. It's going to encourage that early activity and incorporating those active coping strategies, similar to how we've been talking about with all the back pain categories up to this point. It's just really important. Our role as therapists that we're, you know, reminding patients that the spine is strong and our, our bodies are meant to heal and getting back to normal activity is, is a good thing. So that really covers this subcategory of patients. The other thing that um, Alexis and I really felt was important to kind of touch on that seems most appropriately related to the radiating pain category is the role of the intervertebral disc. A lot of this information is covered more so in the current concepts compared to the clinical prediction guideline. Um, so if you don't have your hands on a copy of that, I'd probably encourage you to get a copy of that just so you can review some of this. Um, it can be a little bit long and lengthy and some of it's very anatomy heavy. So we really kind of did our best to pare down what we thought was clinically applicable. Um, but certainly if you have any questions or need more review for this, just cause it's been a while, I know we definitely went back through it, um, it, current concepts is probably your go-to. So the first thing they discuss is the structural basics of the intervertebral disc. Nearly all of the neurovascular structures are surrounding the outermost layer of the intervertebral disc and the longitudinal ligaments. The sensory nerve fibers and their associated vascular structures are most dense in the posterior and anterior lateral intervertebral disc. And those areas are most likely to be loaded under tension during end-range lumbar flexion and or side bending. Research suggests that in patients with intervertebral disc impairment, the diffuse spatial location of pain in their vague symptom reports may be due to the double pattern of sensory information from those nerves to the spinal cord. So sometimes patients with disc, potentially disc-involved pathologies come in and their pain's kind of diffuse or all over, you know, it's not them trying to be difficult. It, there is some research to suggest that it could be because of the pattern in which the information is related to the spinal cord. The vertebral end plates uh, creates a semi-permeal barrier between the subchondral bone and the intervertebral disc. The, intervertebra the vertebral end plate is composed of both fibrocartilage, which is more force resistant and creates a strong bind to the end plate and hyaline cartilage, which is more weakly attached to the subchondral bone and kind of creates that weak link. And it may be an area of greater compromise or a bigger, have a larger role in the development of degenerative disc disease. So I think it's important to know the difference in those two types of cartilage and where, um, you know, clinically where that sits and how that might be relevant. The process of disc degeneration is kind of described by Adams and roughly they suggest that degenerative disc disease should be defined as an aberrant cell-mediated response to progressive structural failure. So discs that have undergone structural disruption lose water content and cannot maintain the normal structure of the outermost layer maintaining that restraint system. The water content then decreases and the annulus is not able to resist compression as a flexible space between those vertebral bodies. That then causes the resistance in a disorganized way, and it can result in microtraumas, which impairs the internal stability and creates further strain upon those internal disc structures. 
So they kind of fall into that vicious cycle and it kind of keeps reoccurring. Intervertebral disc is a symptom generator or a benign variation. I think this part's kind of where some of the debatable research comes in and the differing of opinions about what role the IBD really has. Um, the signs of degenerative disc disease are often going to be present by by the third decade of life or in someone's 30s, and they're nearly a guarantee or a given by the by 70s to 80s. Um, I think all of us have probably seen that clinically. It's important to remember that several research studies conclude that the evidence of degenerative disc disease on imaging is not a clear correlation to presenting symptoms. You know, that's something we've talked about in many of our other episodes, but they specifically reference it relative to the disc. The other thing that I think sometimes is a misnomer is the etiologic predictors for degenerative disc disease. Previously, it was thought that trends contributing to degenerative disc disease were things like heavy labor, smoking, you know, weightlifting. And we realize now based on research that that may in fact not be as strongly correlated as we thought. So they say that a history of smoking and heavy physical labor or loading have not been supported as having a meaningful correlation to degenerative disc disease. Genetic factors have a role in someone's ability to maintain water content and the shape of their overall spinal structure. Therefore, that's more likely to have some role in the correlation of developing degenerative disc disease. There's a figure in current concepts, it's figure 16, um, and that really goes over reviewing the different factors that lead to intervertebral disc involvement. Um, and I think that that might be helpful to review. It's in a chart form, so it's a little more digestible than some of the text. How does degenerative disc disease worsen over time? Essentially, the annular tears have a limited healing capability. And so those marginal annulus fibers, they comprise the outer vascularized portion, and they can remodel to some extent through a traditional inflammatory process. However, it doesn't remodel the same way as the original tissue. It's poor and it's um, like it lays down poorly and it's not organized. When the compromise happens to the more internal portions of the disc, those areas are typically filled with granulation tissue, which is not of the same tensile strength as the original tissue, and the disc isn't able to regain its same tensile load or tolerate that same kind of force. Repeated trauma and excessive stresses acting on the disc can cause the release of cytokines that can further inhibit healing. So it's important to help patients find that balance of when they're first healing, especially the acute pain patients, that maybe a little bit of rest is good. You know, if they're a runner, maybe walking is good. You don't want to take activity away, but realizing, helping them realize what's an excessive stress, I think for a certain group of patients is a hard, a hard balance. And then the last thing we're going to discuss here is the destabilization of the end plate and how it has a role in degenerative disc disease. Basically, injury or compromise to the annulus and the end plate not only cause a compromise to the, to the disc nucleus, but also result in an impaired oxygen and nutrient exchange, which can in turn accelerate those degenerative changes. It's that acceleration of degenerative changes that can have a direct or indirect influence on the surrounding structures, namely the ligamentous structures and the foraminal openings, and that's what's going to contribute to the presence of pain. So that's kind of a quick overview of intervertebral disc and its involvement. I think it most appropriately fits with this category. Um, and then also a summary of the radiating, referred, and related lower extremity pains. Um, 
you know, again, these are outlined well in the clinical prediction guideline in chart format if you need to see it visually. Um, other than that, Alexis, did you have anything you wanted to add on this category? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that's all all pretty uh, straightforward. So, Certainly, like always, if there's any questions or anything, please feel free to send us an email. And then we're going to wrap up our last section with the chronic pain subgroup. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.